Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Part. And hey, we're your hosts. I'm Greg Knott. I'm Darren Laners. And I'm Bill Hostler. And tonight we are very honored to have who I think is one of the most prolific authors of this era of Freemasonry, Michael Pohl, who I have met uh, several times, and he and I have worked on some things about the Masonic Society that we'll go into later. But, Mike, welcome to Meet, Act, and Part. I appreciate it. Why don't you give us a little bit about your Masonic background, what interested you in becoming a Freemason, and maybe what's your role in the craft today? Well, I've come from a Masonic family. My grandfather was actually my inspiration because he passed away when I was about 12. But he left a strong impression on me. He was from what's now Croatia. And he had to learn English before he came here. A lot of things he went through. And he was a past master of his lodge. And I was absolutely taken with Freemasonry because of him. And I ended up joining in 1975. Worked my way up, became Worshipful Master in 1980. I was a master again in 90, and then I recently served as master of uh, one of the Scottish Rite Lodges a couple of years ago, 2018, I think it was. So I've been around a while. I guess, let me just tell a personal story here at the beginning. So I was at a conference in New Orleans and contacted Mike, said, hey, any chance I could go to a lodge? And he picked me up, and we went to one, and unfortunately, I can't remember which one it was that night. I was greeted like everybody had known me forever, and they had a great spread of Cajun food, and it was just awesome. And we saw a third degree, and it was, as I like to describe, really familiar, but yet completely different from the Illinois work that I'm used to. So, Mike, definitely appreciate you doing that. But let me just dig a little bit further into your Masonic background, because I think it sets the tone for a lot of the projects you've worked on. You're involved in the, uh, as the editor of the Masonic Society, and you were at the origination of that organization. And today I have the privilege of serving as the second vice president and have been on the board for a while. I guess I just find that that organization important. If you could talk about the impetus of that and how it's evolved over the last 10 years or so. Well, I remember it was Roger Van Gordon. He gave me a phone call and he told me that he and a few other brothers were planning on putting together a Masonic Research Society. And he wanted to know if I wanted to be part of it. Initially, I was kind of surprised. I thought, well, we got a number of them around. I said, what's going to be different? And he said something that really caught me. He says, well, we want it to be the Time magazine of Masonic research. He says, we want to have something for everyone. And it really impressed me. So I said, sure. So we got together and uh, I ended up being the uh, first vice president. Roger was the first president. I have not regretted it at all. Becoming editor, I'm trying to keep up that standard that w- that was started with and next issued. Well, 49 is coming out right now. It's getting ready to go to the press. The following issue is going to be 50. 
maybe we ought to try to do something special for that. But the Masonic Society, I believe that it, it struck a chord at the very beginning when it was started because it was giving the young guys something that they wanted, a, a full spectrum of information. Chris Hodup was the initial editor and he was able to gear the publication towards what the people were looking for. And I think that's what started everything off as being successful. It was what they wanted. And there were always some who said, oh, well, you got a typo here. You got something. But those were few and far between. The overall was that we had something that was very special and we knew it. I think it's it's shown over the years and it's kept us going. No, there were, there were people who thought we'd, we'd last maybe two or three months, but that's not the case. Michael, uh, having joined in 1975, I'm sure you've seen a evolution in Masonic education. Uh, can you maybe talk about that and talk about your passion for Masonic education? Sure. After World War II, there was a large spike in membership. And by the time I joined, that spike in membership was coming down. And lodges were starting to have trouble, but there was still a lot of the old ways that were going on. I remember some time after, I would see lodges, and they reminded me more of clubs. I would see horrible degrees. I would see horrible opening and closings. And I would see masons in the lodge who really didn't seem that they knew anything about anything in masonry. And I remember a couple of incidents that really frustrated me. I remember one time there was a, a Grand Lodge officer came to the lodge. He had his Grand Lodge apron, collar, purple and gold, and he had short pants on, sandals, and a football jersey. Why is he dressed like this? And then what really broke it for me, I remember I was in uh, visiting a lodge, and uh the master opened the lodge, then he called on the secretary to uh read the minutes. Well, the secretary started reading the minutes, and the master reached underneath his desk. He pulled out a football, and boop, he tossed the football to the junior warden. They tossed it back and forth a few times. Senior deacon jumped and says, can I get in? Threw it to the senior deacon. And I realized I said, something is really wrong here. And when I questioned the people, they didn't really know anything about masonry. It was simply a social club. And so I started working and, and I realized that there were masons who cared deeply about this. Unfortunately, a lot of them were run off. Well, as time passed, there were more and more of these who wanted education. And so I started putting out material. I remember I saw several grand lodges suggesting that lodges use Robert's Rules of Order in their lodges. Well, I realized that that was the exact right book for a club, but exactly the wrong book for, for a lodge because there's so many cases where what's in that book does not apply to a lodge at all. So I revised the whole thing and published that. And it was an attempt to try and get things straight. Well, this was what I, I attempted to do. I'd try to 
write and publish books and take old reprints of valuable books and put them towards anything from the different categories of education, whether it was philosophy or ritual or operation of the lodge. And it started clicking. More and more people started saying, yeah, we got to do this. So I wasn't so much educating myself with these people, but or, or actually teaching them. I was giving them the inspiration for them to go out and find something and look up for the education. So that's what really started it. And it's just grown from there. Let me talk about a couple of your books while we're on this. And then Bill's going to talk about your new book, but, or ask you about your new book. I have probably at least eight of your books, maybe more than that. But the Illinois Lodge of Research and, or I guess the Grand Lodge of Illinois specifically has used a couple of your books, Measured Expectations and another one whose title's escaping me right now as our, you know, kind of book of the year. And I read through those and what I liked about them was they're easy to read. They've got a lot of good information, touches on a little historical, touches on some practical tips for maybe some things to do in the lodge, gives some uh, reflections and overviews of things you've seen and some of these experiences we're talking about. Do you find there's an audience for those books? Obviously, there must be if Grand Lodge of Illinois is using that as the, the book of the year. And why do you think people are so receptive to those? Well, when I started writing, I wrote historical papers and I followed a pattern or a system of writing. And it was for what, what was more considered more scholarly type papers. And they were accepted. The problem I, I found quickly was that most of the rank and file Masons would read them. And I, I had one uh, brother. He, he was talking about something I had written, and he says, well, you certainly know what you're talking about. Well, I start talking with him about it. He said, oh, I don't understand anything you said in it. And it, it caught me off guard. I says, well, what do you mean you don't understand? He says, well, that was above me. He says, I don't know what you were saying. I said, well, then how do you know it's of any value? He says, well, because they wouldn't have published it. And I realized that that's not helping anyone. And I remember when I was in college, they had an English professor who had three PhDs in various fields of English. And he was taught, he says, if you're going to be a help to people, you have to speak at the language that's most appreciated and understood. So I tried to formulate these books as down to earth and just speaking normally as if you would be having a conversation with somebody. And then I started getting people writing. This is what I was looking for. This, uh, I understand what you're saying. And it, it seemed like it, it connected because it was more uh, the language that was needed and useful. That's basically what, what started with that. And, and the tone I've tried to do with books, I've found that more people prefer short segments that they can read maybe at a, a bus stop or, or something where they can just grab a little bit of uh, a subject and then move on and then stop and then pick up later. So it's a formula that I developed with these and it, it seems to be working. So that's where I go with it. Mike, I'm going to tell you, when I first became a Mason, 
I had issues trying to read some of the 19th century Masonic authors and even some of the early 20th century authors. Like you said, I couldn't understand a lot of what they said. It just was beyond me. And I thought I was the dumbest person. There was no way I was ever going to understand to be a Mason. And, and it was people like you and Alan Roberts and the way you wrote is what made it to where I could actually think, okay, maybe I can handle this. And so I do appreciate that. I'll never be able to tell Brother Roberts that, but I can tell you that. But since we're talking about your books... You've got a new book that just came out, the Scottish Rite Papers, and then you're coming out with a second one. Can you tell me about both of those? For the last 35 years or so, I've been trying to understand and figure out the Scottish Rite. And I've published a number of papers in different publications. And I've written some new ones. And I've tried in this book to gather everything together because each individual paper only gave one part. And this has only been a few weeks and I'm getting comments on it. Some are saying that it's what they wanted. Others are saying you must be looking to destroy the Scottish Rite. That's absolutely false. I am absolutely taken with the Scottish Rite and I would never consider doing anything to harm it. However, I see it as an organization that needs to look at itself in the mirror and reevaluate things and move forward. I believe we're close to a golden age and we may see that the Scottish Rite is more necessary than people have ever realized. And rather than think that it is something that needs to be protected or misunderstood deliberately, I think it needs to be open up and admit any problems that it has had and just move on. And that's what the Scottish Rite Papers is about. The second book is coming out, the particular nature of Freemasons. It's talking about Masons, and it's the same format as, as the books I mentioned before, Measured Expectations and such. It talks about problems that we have uh, in today's masonry, individual masons who are trying to do this, trying to do that, uh, situations that develop in lodges, outside of lodges, various things in masonry that maybe we can fine tune and tweak. So that's basically where these two books are going. I, I know your love for the Scottish Rite because you have written about it quite a bit and you explain it a lot in your videos. And I truly believe that if something can't stand the light of day, then maybe there's something wrong. So I think that, you know, anything could stand a little inspection in the light. So, Mike, let's talk about publishing a little bit. I spent a number of years working at the University of Illinois Library where I was the finance guy and went back to school and got my library degree, etc., and just from a budget standpoint, we were buying more and more digitally, but we were starting to see a slight turn where, at least for non, non-academic journals and things, the hard copy people seemed to be kind of drifting back. They wanted to hold that physical book in their hand. And I guess what are you seeing from, you know, a small house publisher that has to do so much of it yourself? What are you seeing out there in today's marketplace? Well, as far as that, I started with uh, Cornerstone, and it, it was in the mid-90s, and it was paperback. And then Kindle and the electronic media came out 
not that long after. And I was lucky enough to jump on that bandwagon early and it took off. It uh, ended up having more Kindle sales than, than uh, physical book sales. And I didn't know which direction it was going to take. There was an espresso machine, they called it. It was where libraries could print up their own books. You have digital copies or you could print it up. So the whole market was changing. They were selling these books more or less like you go get a cup of coffee and you pick out a, a book from a computer screen. They'll go print it up in the back for you and they give it to you. But quality in a lot of these cases was bad. Quality in a lot of the early Kindle type books was questionable. Everything seems to have worked out in that area with Kindle. They're, they're doing a lot better quality and good quality. However, over the last two or three years, Kindle has not been doing the sales that the print books have been doing. The print books have, like you said, have, a, have again come up in number and they are surpassing the Kindle sales. There are some people who absolutely want Kindle. Others don't want it at all. So we do both. And uh, it's a different process for doing each one. But uh, we've started doing some audio books. And it's very difficult for us to, being so small, it's very difficult to, to, to get the production done and the quality and everything that we want. But it's another avenue that's opening up. It, again, is not anywhere near what the print book is, but it seems like there's new options and who knows what tomorrow is going to bring with it. Well, that's kind of where I was going to go with my next thought. Where do you see the future? I do all the above. I've got Audible. I've got, I've bought some of your books digitally. I've even bought some of them both ways, both hard copy and digitally. I still find I like to hold that book in my hand if I got the choice of all three. The Audible books I found from a, just a either if I'm walking or driving, convenience standpoint, help me still kind of keep up with some of it. But so many of the academic journals had all been purchased by these big clearing houses and the small publisher like yourself, and you've carved out a good niche. What's their, what's their long-term outlook? Well, this COVID-19 virus situation I believe is changing everything. Since this has started, I've done more online interviews and showing up and I've attended more online educational programs than I've ever seen before, at least several a week. And I'm hearing about many more of them. There's no doubt in my mind that the industry is changing. For the Masonic Society, I just got a letter like 10 minutes before I came on here that uh, the printer, they're changing their staff. They've lost staff and all of their staff is changing. So it's going to require a, a change in how we do business with them. But it's the same thing. I have no clue what's going to come out after this virus situation is over, other than to say there's no doubt in my mind that we're never going to be the same again. And that could be very good. It could be bad. It could be just different. But I'm of the opinion to be completely ready to turn on a dime. I believe that there has to be flexibility. And I'm in a position to do print books or uh, 
Kindle or audio or whatever the new system is going to be, I'm going to be ready to change and I'm watching for it because I don't know. It's too volatile right now and it's everything. We have no idea. We could be done with this in a couple of weeks. It could be a lot worse in a couple of weeks. It could be a lot worse or a lot better in a couple of months. I don't know. I have no clue. And I'm just knowing that there's changes that I'm seeing. Masonry is not dying by any means by the lodges being closed. I'm just seeing it's a different type of masonry. And I'm translating that into other areas where we may find that things being done right now may end up being the accepted way for things to do in the future. I just don't know. So I think adaptability is critical to our future. Michael, ran across a video of a presentation you gave at Texas Masonic Con 2018, and you told a story about Holland Lodge Number 1 in Texas, which is named after John Henry Holland, who was a past Grandmaster of the Grand Lodge of Louisiana. I know we weren't going to talk too much about the history of Louisiana Freemasonry, but I think that this story revolving around this gentleman and the Battle of New Orleans is one that's very interesting. I was wondering if if you wouldn't mind recounting that for us. The Battle of New Orleans really set the tone for uh, a lot in the United States. And one of the things that we wonder about is exactly what happened. And the reason was that Andrew Jackson came down there and he didn't have practically anything that he needed to mount any kind of defense against the British. And there were several systems that were going on at the same time. He was in one area. He was a Mason. And there was another Mason who was the governor of Louisiana, C.C. Claiborne. And the Grand Lodge was there. And they were all interacting together. But there were several problems that were taking place. And one of them was with a little group of pirates led by Jean Lafitte and his brother Pierre Lafitte. and. To make a really long story short, Jackson realized they got information that the British were coming somewhere along the Gulf Coast. So Jackson had to set up troops from New Orleans all the way down to Mobile. And he was blind, basically, as far as where they were going to attack. So he tried to set up some sort of system where he could find out more information and it wasn't working. At the same time, C.C. Claiborne was having a feud with the Lafitte brothers because they were basically flagrantly uh, running their operations, smuggling operations, right under his nose. So they had a personality conflict, and he ended up capturing Pierre Lafitte and putting him in a jail. Well, Jean Lafitte, found out information about the British. They had passed by and they contacted him and said, look, we want to get into New Orleans, but the Mississippi going up that way is treacherous and they needed directions on how to get through and navigate their way through all of this. And they said, we'll pay you. And Lafitte says, well, what if I don't want to do it? And they said, well, we'll find someone else and we'll pass by and we'll blast your place you little hideout here out of, out of existence. So Lafitte figured, uh, well, yes, I'll do it. And he told them yes, but then he went straight to New Orleans 
and he contacted C.C. Claiborne wanting to uh, make a deal. He says, look, I'll give you some information on the British attack, where it's going to come if you give me Pierre Lafitte. Claiborne shut him down. He says, I'm not interested in that. I don't believe you have anything that's worth anything. So Jean Lafitte left. He goes to Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson had several people in his group. One of them was another Mason, Dominic Yu, who reportedly was a cannoneer under Napoleon. But he Dominic Yu introduced him to Andrew Jackson, and he told him the same thing he told Claiborne. He says, look, I have this information, and I'll give it to you, but you got to get my brother released out of jail. Jackson says, well, I need flint and gunpowder. Lafitte says, we got all that. He says, I'll give you flint, gunpowder, and the information. You get my brother released. So Jackson says, that's, you got a deal. Well, the problem was Jackson went to Claiborne and told him what happened. And Claiborne says, no, I'm not releasing him. And he says, he's being held on state charges. You're federal. You can't do anything about it. Jackson went nuts. He knew that this was the only chance they had to defend New Orleans. Well, the jailer that was in charge of the Cabildo jail, which was where they were keeping Pierre Lafitte, was John Henry Holland. And he was a young Mason at the time. and He was working as the jailer. Nobody knows what happened and how he got, but all of a sudden, two days later, Holland puts a notice in the paper saying that Pierre Lafitte escaped the Cabildo. Well, that was the first time anyone had ever escaped a Cabildo, and it wasn't possible. Something happened. Well, the Battle of New Orleans happened. Pierre Lafitte was released. Jean Lafitte paid Jackson what he agreed to. Jackson, in turn, gave, got the information. They were able to get enough gunpowder and, and, and flints to fight the battle. And basically, that was how the Battle of New Orleans was won. And it was because John Holland, I guess you'd say he did something that was uh improper. Had he not done that, the Battle of New Orleans would probably have been lost. But the entire way of how it happened, it was a series of lucky breaks, in all honesty. And if the British had landed anywhere else, it wouldn't have happened if they had done so many things. So it was a, a series of very good bits of fortune. But John Henry Holland was actually the uh, hero of the Battle of New Orleans. And Texas is, it got him as their first uh, lodge. And he was the one who gave the charter for them to bring their first lodge around. So that's that's a, an abbreviated story of, of of what happened if that helps yeah i think that story is just fascinating and thank you for retelling it mike you know that's the kind of masonic education i really like is masonic history i know that you started the new orleans scottish Rite college can you tell me about that and how would we find that well it started simply because uh i was ignorant about a lot of the new technology that was coming out. And a number of people were telling me about YouTube and making 
uh, videos and podcasts and things like that. And I really didn't know what they were talking about. So my son got with me, actually both my sons, and they were telling me, you ought to try this. And uh, one of them set me up and we started doing videos. And uh, basically it was a lot of what the books were, just basic information, uh, lodge help, history, uh, Scottish Rite information, and it started growing. And I was very surprised. And we have a separate channel for the YouTube videos and uh, one for podcasts. And I guess the easiest way to find it is just to go to Google and Google New Orleans Scottish Rite College. But the address is www.no-sr-college.com. But we just finished one this afternoon, actually, and it's going to be out probably tomorrow or the next day. And so it's keeping me active. And it, it, it like I said, that it, it's at one time it was kind of unique when it started. It was about six years ago we started that. But it's now one of many that are taking place. And, and, and I think, like I said, this current situation has a lot to do with it. But it's designed initially for Scottish Rite education, but it's also Craft Lodge education. Mike, if someone asked you about joining Freemasonry today, why should they join? What What is it you would tell them? that you've seen based on 40 years plus of life experience, why should they still join today in 2020? I don't believe anybody should join Masonry. I believe that they either want to join or they don't need to join. I needed to join. Uh, Once I started getting some information, I realized I needed to stay. I'm seeing a lot of the ideas that, that people, uh, we've got to get more numbers. Well, that's not, that's not the sound. We need members. We need Masons. We need people who have a hunger in them for, for what we have. And, and I've had people come to me and, oh yeah, I saw the Masonic organization and, and they, they come and they, they have a meal and, you can tell right off that they're not interested. They're interested in the club aspect. And there's still enough lodges around where that exists. But these uh, Masons, from my experience, they don't really last that long. And my fear is the ones who are truly interested and who need to find the deeper aspects of Masonry if they join the wrong lodge and they join a club, well, they get frustrated quickly. And we, and this is one of the reasons I think we see a, a number of revolving doors where people join and say, ah, oh, this is not what I thought it was, and they leave. And I believe one of the biggest injustices we can do to young Masons is uh, the blame game, where you get someone who says, well, the problem is you. You don't appreciate what we're doing. Uh, you have to be loyal to us. You have to be here no matter what we offer. So any problems with us, it's really your fault. And that's what I see as a, a really a major problem with 
current situations. Mike, this is just a question. I know that a few years ago, before the Internet really took off, it was tough there for a brief period selling Masonic books. And a lot of the brothers that didn't, that were not so much computer guys before the CompuServe and that, they had trouble really understanding where they could get them. Has the proliferation of the Internet and all these different social media things, have they helped your sales, do you think? Do they, you think they've helped Masonic education in, in any way? Yes, but I have to qualify that. You see, when I started, you mentioned Alan Roberts before. Well, he was my mentor. He was the guy who got me started in publishing. And uh, when he passed away for about a year or so, I helped his son, Kenny, with Anchor Communications. So as a, I have a soft spot in my heart for Alan Roberts. But he was the one who told me, he says, if you get in this business and you do it right, don't expect to make any money. And believe me, he's telling the truth because there is no real money in what I'm doing. I could probably work for McDonald's or Burger King and make as much as I'm making doing this. People who do this do it because you love what you're doing, because you're not going to get wealthy doing Masonic books. And anyone who's published books will tell you that it just doesn't happen. Uh, it's, it's like the difference in, in baseball between a major league player and the minor leagues, where the minor leagues, you've been making minimum wage and major leagues, you're making millions. Well, that's the same way with this type of publishing. The pandemic that's going on right now is really kicking me hard because uh, distributors, everything where we could get books from time of order to being in the hands, maybe a week, week and a half, two weeks at the tops. Now it's a month or so from time of order to time it's received. And who knows where it's going to be. And it's, it's just killing the business. And it's not a business that is very stable. And one of the problems I've had is publishing for Masonic writers, because sometimes they'll say, well, I'm making the big time now. And I try to say, you know, there's, there's not much money. Don't expect it. And then they're extremely disappointed when there's not much of any kind of royalty. And so it's a deceiving business. Yes, the Internet has helped. Yes, uh, websites have helped. Yes, all the promotion has helped. However, it's still very, very small. And it's not a business that somebody wants to get into if they're looking to make money. I guess it's kind of like Roger Van Gordon said, a Masonic best-selling book is when you sell four copies. Yeah, that's about it. I was very, very lucky. We talk about Kindle. In the very early days of Kindle, I started publishing some of the books on Kindle. And it was like in the very early days, and one of the books clicked on Kindle, and it was the very first time that the New York Times put the included Kindle in that bestsellers list. Well, because there was not a big market, I ended up on their bestsellers list. Uh, I think it was some it was the top 100. And I think I was something like 40 or somewhere around that area. But the fact was I made the bestsellers list for, for the New York Times. And it didn't mean anything. It didn't mean that there was a lot of sales and but it's a status that, you know, I, I need for advertising because it did happen. But in reality, I've never made it since and never will. And it certainly 
not something that uh, is reflective of actual sales, if, 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 if you see what I mean. You can always add now, best New York Times bestselling author Michael Pohl to your business card. I do. I do. <laughs> that's, that's, that's on there, believe me. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, speaking of Kindle and – I have low vision now. I can barely read a printed book. I know you, I talked to you about this, but not long ago I got – it looks like a big microfiche machine that I'm able to – it's a magnifier. I can actually look at printed books at like 26 times the magnification of – and so it's helped me read printed books again. But I do appreciate that you do put things on ebook because those have been my savior for the last four or five years. And I'm sure at the age of a lot of the elderly brothers who might still read, between those and large print books has probably been the savior of many of us. And I do thank you for making those available electronically. You know, they say a lot of the problems with anything that you do electronic is the problem is between the switch and the floor. It's the operator. And it's me. If you have a book that is straight text, then that goes into Kindle very easily. And it's easy to publish that. This book, The Scottish Rite Papers, I have a number of images in it. That's more tricky. And I'm working now. I haven't yet released a Kindle version because I'm working trying to get maneuver these images. There was a time when Kindle was horrible with images. If you had images in a book, it really was not satisfactory. It was not appealing by, by any means. So it's a different process. And it's something that most likely if I wanted to spend a few thousand dollars, I could get somebody to pay somebody to do it. But like again, business can't can't justify that hey mike what's your best advice for new authors somebody that has never published has never put together a book what do you tell the aspiring newbie well the first thing is like i've been talking about don't expect a lot of money there's people who believe that once they uh, publish a book any kind of book they're going to be taking trips to Europe on it and things like that. And it's just not the case, especially something as small a market as a Masonic book. Uh, there was a time when um, right after the uh, Dan Brown series and stuff like that, where uh, it was more popular, but right now it's, it's very low sales. And one of the best things is there's a number of print on demand companies that are very easy to work with. Some of them are more complicated, but I would advise somebody to explore publishing, self-publishing, because if they take the time and if they study how the books are laid out and what you need to make a attractive looking insides, at least a professional looking, self-publish, spend a little time on a cover, get something that's attractive Spend a little time on the inside laying it out. Cornerstone has its own ISBN numbers, and they cost quite a bit for a chunk of them. But a lot of these companies like Amazon and, and things like that, other companies, you can publish through them, and they will provide you with an ISBN number. Now, the book will technically be published by them, and that's how they'll list it. But you still you you can get an ISBN number, which will open doors for them. Make sure that your book is not completely local. And by that, I mean, if, if you're publishing a book 
on your own lodge's history. Well, that may have interest in your lodge or your area, but outside of that area, probably no one's going to really want to spend money on that. So unless you have something very unique or something that is extremely interesting to people across the board or across the country, several states away, try to make it a, a book that you'd want to just give to members of your lodge or sell to members of your lodge, but don't expect a lot of return or sales from outside that area. I would also suggest that you proofread a book many times and pass it off to somebody else because I can guarantee you typos will be invisible to you until the book's in print and then they'll jump out, hit you in the face. And it's best to have several different people look at it because people, when you start reading or proofreading, you'll miss things and you absolutely can't see them. And it's best to have several people look that over. But everyone should try to do something. And if you have any ability with layout, try to work with these companies. Get them to show you there's all kind of tutorials that you can follow. And I would suggest first trying to do it yourself. Cornerstone, we haven't been able to publish much for other authors in a while now because there's simply no money. And it's too time consuming and it's it's problematic, really. Now, that makes a lot of sense. So do your homework, proofread, pass it off to somebody else. Know you're not going to get rich, but enjoy the experience and see what's out there. I, I could see from if you're a publisher with a low margin, a small shop like yours, if you spend all that time for somebody else formatting and doing all that, like you said, given the, the limited market of a Masonic book, I could absolutely see why you wouldn't, you know, the, the investment of your time just wouldn't, you just wouldn't get the return on it. So makes, makes a whole lot of sense to me. Let me kick it over to Bill and see what other maybe kind of closing thoughts as we get towards the end of this episode. Mike, you've seen pretty much masonry for the last nearly four decades. What do you think, if I were to give you a crystal ball, what do you think you would see for the future of Freemasonry in, say, the next 30 years? It's really so hard to tell. talked a little bit about before about this uh, COVID-19 virus. I really believe everything is in a process of changing. And it's so hard to tell. I know that in the last... 10, 15 or more years, there's been a strong desire with many of the young Masons to get to real Masonry, to understand what Masonry is all about, to understand the deeper aspects. And since this quarantine that everybody's been in, stay-at-home laws, I've seen so many new events taking place online, educational events it looks like the young guys are stepping up and saying, hey, we're going to do something. It doesn't matter what the situation is. We are going to learn masonry and we're going to talk about masonry. It doesn't have to be the secret stuff. It doesn't have to be things that are reserved for the lodge. If we can't be in the lodge, we could do the other stuff that we need to do. And I have a gut feeling that once all of this is over, you can see more and more lodges that are 
simply going to revert to this practice. I don't think the internet is going to disappear. I think it's going to be uh, an additional method for teaching. I think the lodge will has the potential of returning maybe better than it was before. And I think we're going to become less and less of a club atmosphere and more of a taking a good man and making him better system. And I really think I'm cautiously very optimistic as to what's going to be taking place because it very well could be some very good things, but I sure hope I'm right. Uh, you know, it be, could be anything, but I kind of have a feeling that with everything lining up, there's a lot to look forward to. My thought. You said I, I have been in, I've been at a Royal Arch education uh, session from Texas. I've seen things all over the country and I think the genie's out of the bottle and you're not going to put it back in. And I think even some of the old timers have probably learned to use technology the last two months. And we're going to change Freemasonry uh, in a positive way. And it's not that it's, I think it's part of this con continual growth of the craft as we go uh, in the future down the road. So, Mike, any final thoughts you want to leave us as we wrap up this episode? Well, I really think that uh, we have something very special in Masonry. I think we have something special in the Scottish Rite, New York Rite. I think we have, don't know enough about what we have. I believe we don't know enough about our history. I believe that there are many times where we need to look more into the ritual, into the philosophy. And once we start doing that, we can find little nuggets of wisdom that we may have missed. And it, I think the bottom line is that by doing this, we're going to be the ones that benefit. And I think that was the original goal of Masonry the whole time, to take somebody and give them some information and some ability to find things that's going to end up helping them in their lives and in society. So I think we, we do have a lot to look forward to. Well, thank you, Mike. I agree with you 100%. Let me just say a, a, a huge thank you for all that you do for Freemasonry, the publishing, the the online Scottish Rite College, especially the work you do with, as the editor of the Journal of the Masonic Society. And if you are not a member of the Masonic Society, just search it online, the Masonic Society, and you'll find our website with all kinds of information on it. There's actually a section on there where you can go and look at some of our back issues. And you'll see a lot of the things that Mike has talked about tonight in terms of education and bringing awareness of, of it to the craft are all right there in that journal, and we've made it as a resource for you. So, again, Mike, I appreciate you joining us. You're just one of the outstanding brothers I've met I'm in my journey, and I'm just really thankful. So thanks again for everything you do. And, everybody, we appreciate you listening to this episode of Meet, Act, and Part, and we hope you Tune in again. Thank you.